Thank you, Lauren. Psalm 20 is a, a prayer and a song that the Israelites would pray and, and probably put music to before they would uh, go into battle, before they would fight their, their enemies. Psalm 21, which comes right after it, is a song that they would sing after battle. It was a song of celebration that they would, that they would sing to the Lord after God had given them victory. And so uh, Psalm 20 and 21, normally you would read those together and you would kind of see the before and after picture of, of what it was like for God's people as they would go out to fight their enemies. The prayer before and then the song of celebration after. Now, uh, we'll only cover Psalm 20 today, uh, but, but maybe there'll be another time I can come back and we can do chapter 21. Now, we may not be headed into war, and so you think, well, why would we, why would we uh, look at a psalm of warfare Together, I understand we're not uh, marching into battle necessarily, uh, but the Bible does talk about Christians being engaged continually in spiritual warfare, and so there's an there's an aspect where terminology like this is helpful for us. And we also consider that uh, in many places in our culture, especially in our our country, uh, we see conflict around us pretty regularly don't we? Uh, we see a, a conflict especially of ideas and of beliefs and of worldviews, and so this seems like a fitting psalm for our time. Psalm 20, uh, as you heard Lauren read, and, and hopefully you have it in front of you, there it's, it's a psalm of David, and David wrote this, he says, to the choir master. So David was the king in Israel, and the choir master was the person who would lead the singing for the troops as they would go into battle. So he was the one who would, who would conduct the, the singing, who would say, let's sing this song as we march. And so, so David was Israel's king, and, th- and part of this psalm speaks about the king, which means that David is writing a song that others would sing, at least in part about him, because of his role as the king. And there's, there's three parts to this song, three parts to this prayer. We'll, we'll just consider them uh, in order. It's pretty simply laid out. First, you have the requests. So just like when we pray, we offer requests to God. You have the requests in verses 1 through 5. And then you have David's confidence, his confidence that those requests are going to be answered in verses 6 through 8. And then in verse 9, the final verse, you have this, you, you really have kind of an answer to the prayer. And so we'll look, at, we'll look at all these things. So first, the request. What exactly is it that David prays for from Psalm 20? Well, the first thing he prays for in verse 1 is he prays for protection. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. So he's praying for the people's protection in the day of trouble, which war, of course, is troublesome. And so David is praying for the protection of God's people as they go in to battle. And David apparently expects that God will answer that. He expects that God will protect them, would deliver them from their trouble. Now, why would David expect that? 
probably because of all the times leading up to this in Israel's history that God had showed himself faithful and able to protect them and to answer a prayer like this. For example, uh, back in Genesis 35, you have Jacob who uh, makes this statement about God. Jacob says that God is the one who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. That's a pretty remarkable thing to say about God. He has answered me in the day of my distress and been with me wherever I have gone. I wonder if you can say that about God. I wonder if God has shown that uh, to be true about himself to you. Because I know for, for those of us who can say that about God, it really gives us great confidence when we head into other kinds of conflict. We, we recognize our conflicts we've had in the past and we say, hey, the Lord answered me in the days of those previous distresses. He's been with me wherever I've gone, which means even when I go into more and more conflict, guess what? He's still going to be there. He's still going to answer me. This is true of David. David had faced conflict. David had conflict with his brothers. So, so if, you, if you can relate to family conflict, David had that. David had conflict with Goliath. David had conflict with King Saul. If you remember how Saul treated David, especially before David became king. And yet David was able even to say later in his life, 1 Kings 121, David said that the Lord is the one who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity. Redeemed my soul out of every adversity. Not just some of them, every one of them. So David's experience... Had, had led him to pray this way, to pray for the Lord's answer in the day of trouble, to pray for the name of the God of Jacob to protect them. In verse 2, David prays for the Lord's presence, for the Lord to be with them. He, he says in verse 2, May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. David knew that they wouldn't be protected from their enemies unless the Lord was actually present with them. So he asks the Lord for help. Send us help from your sanctuary. Send us support from Zion. In the Bible, Zion uh, and sanctuary actually both refer to where God lives, to where God dwells, to his home. We would say even to, it would refer to heaven. And so David is basically saying, Lord, send us help and send us support from where you live, from heaven, which, which, is, which is like he's saying, uh, you come from where you live and help us. You, let your presence be with us. And we'll, we'll see again a little later in this psalm that this is exactly what David expected to happen. It wasn't just a, oh, I wish you would. It was like, Lord, uh, you will do this for us. You will give us your presence. So he asks it and he, and he anticipates that it will happen. In verse 3, David prays for, for purity. Verse 3, he says, May he remember all your offerings... And regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. David wanted the Lord to remember the offerings and the sacrifices that the people had, had given to the Lord. Now, the purpose of sacrifices and offerings in the Old Testament was, was really to make a way for the people who were sinful 
to be able to approach God who is holy. How could these wicked people go before a holy God? And the answer is, well, there had to be some kind of a, uh, an offering made to God, a sacrifice made to God, so that God would, would look at the sacrifice and not at their wickedness. So David is asking, God had demanded that this atonement be made for the people so that it would cover their wickedness, and David is, is asking for the Lord to count his people as holy before him by considering these offerings and these sacrifices that they would offer. Let us be pure before you is, is essentially what David is praying. Verse 4, David, David is praying about their, their purposes, and he says, May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. So purposes here, your, your heart's desire, what do you want, and your plans, what do you intend? And David is saying, Lord, grant all these things for, for your people. Now, very, this isn't hard to, to figure out. If they're going into battle, what's their heart's desire? What are they wanting to do? To win, to have victory, to not be defeated. So what are their plans? That's their desire. Their plans are to defeat the enemy before the enemy defeats us. And when they would defeat the enemy, they would praise the Lord who had given them victory over their enemies. So in verse 5, David, David requests that the people then would praise the Lord. Verse 5, may we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. Their praise would be a shout for joy. They would shout for joy because of the God who saves them. And I said earlier that Psalm 21 is that song that they would sing in celebration of the victory. So, so Psalm 21 probably is the, the shout for joy that they would give. But their praise would also involve, it says there in verse 5, uh, setting up banners, setting up banners in God's name. In the name of our God, set up our banners. So, so in verse 1, uh, David says, let your name protect us. In verse 5, he says, let your name be what we can set up banners to. Now, banners is exactly what it sounds like. It would be these flags that they would set up at certain rallying points so that when everybody would see the flags, see the banners, they would know to rally to that point. They would know that their army had advanced that far. So if you saw your flag advancing, that was a good thing. You would know to, to rally to it. Now, if you saw the enemy's flag coming closer to you, drawing near... That would not be a good thing. But you would look for your own flag to know where to, know where to rally to. So David is asking, let us set up banners in your name, which is another way of saying, let us advance on our enemies. Give us victory. Let our flag go forward. Let our banner fly forward. And in doing so would result in them praising the Lord, shouting for joy salvation. And then in verse, at the end of verse 5, he kind of sums it up by saying this, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions, which is not really a new request. It's, it's really just a way of summarizing all the things that he had asked up to this point. So everything we've asked, all the petitions from verses 1 through 5, just fulfill all of those. Fulfill all those petition, uh, petitions, those requests. Now I want to make a, a couple observations about these requests. Uh, first one is this. These requests really aren't too different from the things that you and I pray for. If we just went back through that list, uh, probably all of us would say, yeah, I pray for that, or I have prayed for that, or I sometimes pray for that. 
Because think about it. We often pray for the Lord's protection, don't we? Lord, protect us, you know, in a given situation. Protect us from the virus. Protect us from violence, whatever. We often pray for, for the Lord's presence. Lord, be with us as we go and do these, do these things. That's a common way that, that Christians pray. Sometimes we, hopefully we even pray to be pure before the Lord. Lord, count me as righteous before you. That would not be uncommon for a Christian to pray. We might pray, too, for our, our purposes to be fulfilled. We might pray that we would praise Him appropriately. So, so, so these are relatable kinds of requests for us in our lives. Now, David is not just asking these things out of his own self-interest, like, I want my life to be easy, or I want things to go well for me, or I want, I want war to be easy, like that could ever be a, be a thing. But he's asking because these things are consistent with what God had promised all along to do for David and to do for his people. We're going to see in the next point that David is confident because he's, act, he's, asking, all, he's asking the Lord to do exactly all the things that God had promised to do. The, the requests are, are, if they're fulfilled, they're going to make the Lord look great. They're not going to make the people look great. So that's the first observation. The other observation about the requests is this. When God does answer these requests, if he were to answer them, these answers are likely to come slowly rather than quickly. War was not a quick thing. It was not like a, hey, we've got a battle at 2 o'clock and we'll have dinner at 5. And it, you know, it just would be over with. It was a slow thing. Days, weeks, and months at a time, they would, go, they would march, they would advance, they would fight. It was an investment of their lives. We often want answers to our prayers immediately. So like, Lord, get me out of this situation now is a way that we might normally pray. But answers often come slowly. Now, we often as associate slowness with, you know, with negativity. Like slowness is a, is a bad thing. If something's slow, it's no good. If your phone and your computer is slow, you're like, I need a new one. It's not fast enough. Um, I've coached basketball. Mr. Gramacki mentioned that. I've coached a few of you in here. Uh, most of us know that in basketball and, and really in most other sports, slowness is a bad thing. Right? We don't, we don't say, hey, let's, uh, let's slow down, you know, maybe for strategy. But normally, like, we want really fast players, don't we? We want people who can think quickly and move quickly. Uh, I, had a, I had a coach who, uh, Coach Matthias would know who I'm talking about. He was especially creative in the way that he would criticize uh, people who he thought weren't very, weren't very fast. He would, and I'm going to pick on some people who I have coached, so maybe, I, I don't think I've said any of these things to you. I'm a lot nicer than this. But, but for example, he would say something like, okay, so Noah Keith, um, if you were any slower, you'd be moving backwards. Something like that, okay? Or, or he might say something like, um, all right, Fontana, um, you have three speeds, slow, stop, and fall over. That would be, that'd be another. Or my favorite would be uh, like Noah Bastian. If you raced a pregnant lady, you'd finish third. And that's how we view speed. We think, we think it's necessary. We think it's as necessary for a 
for, for spiritual victory to come as quickly as athletic victory. We think speed is as necessary for that. Some of you are just now getting that, that third joke, I can tell. Uh, but it's not necessary. Spiritual victory often comes slowly. The Lord's responses to our prayers may seem to never come, but it doesn't mean He's not at work. Maybe the best description I've ever heard of, of the Christian life is that the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. It's not this rapid change of lifestyle, normally. It's not this uh, flashy, impressive, radical, dramatic, sudden kind of an experience. It's a long obedience in the same direction. That's what Christianity typically is. It's not immediate, but it's more effective, usually. And so more than a quick victory, David is praying for God's faithfulness to be eternal, to outlast what might come and go. And that's why he has confidence in his request. So second part of this, David's confidence, verses 6 through 8. David is confident basically because of two reasons. First, he, he has knowledge of the Lord's salvation. He knows that the Lord will save. Look at verse 6. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. David says, I know this. David had prayed in verse 5 that they would be able to shout for joy over the Lord's salvation. And here he says, I know that it will come. I know that the Lord saves his anointed. And it would come because the Lord would give his presence. He would actually come and be there. Did you notice the statement there in verse 6? He will answer from his holy heaven. So David, David said, Lord, send help from your sanctuary. And now he's saying, Lord, you will answer from heaven. You will answer from your sanctuary. And the salvation would come from, he says, the saving might of your right hand. The saving might of his right hand. Now, who does it say that, that David, David says, I know that the Lord saves who? His anointed. Okay, who's the anointed one? Who was it that the people would anoint? A king. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters, one, because David was the king, so this might sound like kind of a selfish request. Lord, I know you're going to save me because I'm the anointed one. But think about why this was a crucial request. If the battle was won but the king was lost, the nation would be leaderless. They'd be like sheep without a shepherd. To lose the king was almost as disastrous, and in some cases worse than losing the battle itself, because even if the battle was lost but the king was spared, at least the king could kind of regather those that remained and continue to lead them to future victories. He could, he could rally the troops. Now, how did David know, how, how could David say, I know that the Lord saves his anointed? Well, probably because the Lord had promised David in 2 Samuel 7, that a descendant of his would reign on the throne of Israel forever and that his kingdom would be eternal. So David had confidence in what he was asking because he knew that God's salvation depended, depended on a son of David being king over Israel one day forever. David had knowledge of the Lord's salvation. And the second thing David had confidence in is that he had trust in the Lord's name. He trusted in the Lord's name. So verses 7 and 8, 
Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall. But we rise and stand upright. And the comparison here is pretty remarkable because, as, as you could probably figure out, the chariots and horses of, of, of that day were like the planes and tanks of our day. And, and David says that even in the heat of the battle, Israel's trust isn't in their weaponry. It's not in their manpower. It's in the name of the Lord. So this, this would be like, like standing on a battlefield and saying, you're trusting in your planes and your tanks. We're trusting in the name of the Lord our God. Like, how foolish would that sound? In fact, he says in verse 8, they, those who trust in chariots and horses, collapse and fall. But we who trust in the name of the Lord our God stand and are upright. So again, just to kind of change the analogy, he might, he might say something like this. Some trust in machine guns and helicopters, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And, and because our trust in, is in his name, we'll stand and be upright. If you trust in your manpower, you will collapse and fall. Now David, David knew this from experience. David had experienced something like this with Goliath. If you remember the story, you probably remember all of the weaponry that Goliath had. Goliath comes at him, you know, with armor, with a helmet, with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin. And David acknowledges this. David said in that situation to Goliath, he says, You come at me with all these things. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, whom you have defied. I don't have a weapon, but I've got the name of the Lord. And that was enough for David. Now you think about how this might apply for us, and I think, it, I think it's actually pretty simple. We would have to ask, well, what is our, what is our confidence? You know, what's, what's our hope for ourselves, for our families, even for our country? Uh, are, are we trusting in a political party? And, and we think, well, if our, if our political party wins... Everything will be okay. Uh, are, are we trusting in, in the economy? You know, as long as I can have a good job that pays me well, I'll be okay. Is that what we're trusting in? You know, is it a presidential candidate? Is it in even our own abilities? You know, I'll be okay as long as I can use my skills to get this scholarship or, you know, I'm going to bank on my own intelligence. Maybe you're banking on the abilities and intelligence of somebody else. Like, I'm going to stick close to this person because I know he'll be successful when we think that that person may never let us down. And David would say, all who trust in those things will collapse and fall, but those who trust in the name of the Lord our God will be the ones who stand upright. Even when all those things around us crumble. So that's his confidence. And then lastly, verse 9 What's the answer? How does this prayer get answered? Verse 9 says, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. 
And in some ways, this is, this is a final request, and really it's just a repeat. He's not requesting anything new. He's kind of just summarizing all the requests that he made before. But because David had already expressed his confidence, he knows that the Lord will answer. He's assured of an answer. So, so he really could be saying, Lord, you will save the king. You will answer us when we, when we call. And the, and the request, again, to save the king might sound selfish because who's the king? David is. He's the one who, who wrote this. So is David just asking for his own deliverance? Like, Lord, I don't care what else happens. Just, just <laughs> let me live to see tomorrow. I don't think that's what he's asking. Because I don't think he's asking it just for himself. I think he's asking it for the one who would come after him, who would be his descendant, who would sit on his throne forever. Because one day, God would answer the call of his people by sending help from his sanctuary in the birth of his son, Jesus. And Jesus, of course, would would be born, would live would live his life as a, as a perfect, continual offering and sacrifice to God, would die the death of, of one who was being offered as a sacrifice, as a lamb who was slain, whose blood was spilled to cover the sins of his people. And God would remember that offering and respond with favor to that offering of Jesus giving his own life, becoming the sacrifice for sins that would put an end to all the other sacrifices that had been necessary up to that point. And people one day would shout for joy over God's salvation. As Jesus rode into the streets of the city, they would cry, Hosanna, which is a way of of saying, save us. They would shout for joy over God's salvation because the anointed king had come. The son of David had come. In the New Testament, Paul would trust in the name of the Lord his God by writing to us that Jesus was given a name that is above every name and that at his name every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So this psalm is not a selfish prayer by David for his own protection. And it's not just a Christian formula for us to ask God that we can say these words and just and that our own lives will automatically be made successful or made easy. It's not that either. This psalm, this prayer, it's a confident request that the Lord's anointed, His Messiah, would reign as king over His people forever, even when everything else in the world around them collapsed and failed. So that's why we, that's how we read this psalm, and that's why we pray these words along with David. Would you pray with me now? Father, thank you for King David. Thank you that he sought to follow you with his heart, to lead his people to do the same, to seek your face, to seek your presence. Thank you for his confidence. Uh, that you would respond to his prayers in a great and, uh, and glorious and victorious way. But Lord, more than that, we thank you for the son of David who would come and, and uh, would be the sacrifice for us.
who, who rather than coming to set up his kingdom on the earth, uh, actually submitted himself to the authorities of his day and gave himself up for us. And so we trust that one day he's coming again and he will overthrow all those who oppose him and he will set up his kingdom on the earth and we will shout for joy over his salvation in that day. And so we pray for it to come and we pray that until then you'll help us to be faithful to you, that our trust would not be in the chariots and horses of our day, but they would be, that it would be in the name of the Lord our God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.